Soccer's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend. As always, this is your host of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast and founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is PLO Beast and Twitch legend Jay Nandez, whose real name, by the way, is not Jay or Jason Hernandez, but Fernando Habiger. Originally, this episode was supposed to be a one-shot deal, but just like in the case of Michael Acevedo, an hour and a half into our call, Fernando and I still found ourselves in the middle of his amazing poker journey. So we decided to meet back up for an immediate round two, and one week later, we recorded another 1.5 hours of greatness bomb dripping conversation that'll be released in the next month. In the following conversation, you're going to hear Fernando go deep into his origin story so that you'll have a more clear idea of where the man is coming from, the impact mental game coaches have had on his career and life, why he actively made the decision to pursue PLO, and much, much more. Before you dive into this episode, I want to address something really fast, and that's Fernando's character. The one ideal that powers the Chasing Poker Greatest podcast is that we will always strive to champion the good guys of the poker world. While I certainly can't speak for anybody else's experience with Jay Nandez, I personally found him to be respectful, punctual, engaging, and a gracious human being. It was also very apparent to me how much he cares about his students and Twitch community. He made such a positive impression on yours truly that I would have zero hesitations about working with him again in the future. At the end of the day, I'll let you judge for yourself. Before we dive in, this interview is brought to you by Poker with Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit PokerWithPresence.com. So without any further ado, I bring to you PLO Crusher streaming sensation, the author of Mastering Small Stakes Pot Limit Omaha, Jay Nandez. Fernando, good morning, my friend. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. We we just had a conversation about whether I should call you Fernando or Jay Nandez. We're going we're gonna to stick with the Fernando for now. Yeah, actually, most people believe that Jay Nandis in some way expresses my actual name. And then after years of watching me, they send me a private message. Hey, Jason, how's it going? And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, what do you mean by Jason? Well, Jay Nandis, right? Your name is Jason Nandis or Jason Fernandez. And I'm like, dude, I was like 18 years old. And I was like putting together some cool sounding words and whatever. And I'm actually not Jason, but okay. <laughs> or Nandez. You're neither. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, actually. But also some people call me Nandez or Jay Nandez or Jay. It's all cool, but Chasen is just too far, too far from it. Too far. If you could go back in time, would you like to spend some more energy on coming up with your poker alias? I like it, actually. I think it's, it's fine. It has something to it. And I'm not sure, I guess, I'm biased because like throughout the years, people, like, especially close friends, call you that. And 
and it's 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 kind of becoming like a nickname. I wouldn't know like what nickname Fernando would result <laughs> into. So it's uh, it's it's a good way to, you know, like when you're in school and you're like, hey, my name is Fernando, but call me Jay. And they're like, what? Doesn't make any sense. No one's gonna call you Jay. So like you you're wishful thinking for like a nickname. It will never come true. And um, so I guess in this case, I'm I'm okay with it. My use my screen names used to be much different. Uh, like on Full Tail Poker, for example, my screen name was Who is now the fish, and that uh. Uh, I, I prefer Jay Nanas today. <laughs> It'd be tough if close friends were calling you who is now the fish. That's a <laughs> bit of a mouthful. So let's start out today. Going back to the beginning, you've been in this world for a, a while. And you know, I want to hear your story. Where are you coming from? How did you get involved with poker? Yeah, totally. I am from Switzerland, which is probably not very common for a professional poker player or online poker player. I started playing poker in uh, pretty much at the poker boom. So that was 15 years ago, which is making it clear that I'm pretty old. So I'm, I'm 33 years old. And when I, when I turned 18, I basically started playing poker uh, right around the moneymaker boom effect and the, the golden era of poker, essentially. How was and that in Switzerland? It was, it was existent. I mean, in school, we're playing for pennies and, and during breaks and, and people liked it. I mean, they didn't love it, but it was a thing for sure. Like everyone was, was talking about poker and also video games weren't as good as today, right? There wasn't Twitch and, 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 and the games weren't as uh, well thought out and, and done. So poker and online poker was actually quite competitive as, like a, as a hobby. So I got into it um, with, my, with my school friends, but they kind of lost interest pretty quick. And, and I started taking my own path in poker by residing to the online poker space, essentially buying books and, and treating it more like a, more like a, like me trying to learn chess. Okay. This is a game where you can become better. Uh, money wasn't really a, a priority at this point because you wouldn't even think of making money with poker. It's just when you have to think about, I'm getting into poker while being at school. And I mean, you're just trying to like distract yourself. So you don't have to like learn. So I'm just getting like into poker and what's wrong I with remember? learning? What, why? No. So, <laughs> well, what's interesting is there's this, like this clash of, you know, resistant to learning at school, but motivated to learn poker. And so like that, that's just an interesting mashup there. Yeah. I think in, in school I was, I, I never felt really challenged because the expectations that my parents had and myself were always not that high in a sense of I was always looked at and so I have a sister and a brother I was always looked at as you know Fernando's going to do it anyway like he's going to find a way he's going to excel like he doesn't have to do much for school to be good at it and I was never great at school and maybe there is some connection to that which I found out much much later in my life that if you if if people uh, like it's much better to praise your effort than your actual result because you might have good results with low effort. And if, if the underlying message is you're going to get good results no matter what, you might have some trouble in life later on. And I'm not playing my parents. I had a great childhood, but I'm just saying I realized later on in my life when I went to university, which we're going to get to a little bit later, that I don't actually excel that easily everywhere. <laughs> but back then in school, I was like, okay, I get good grades, like good enough grades pretty easily. So uh, where can I get challenged? And, and one of the activities, obviously, is sports. So I, I was doing a lot of sports and I was uh, also coaching different teams, playing different sports and being really competitive in that area. 
but also intellectually, I was looking for something that is sort of my own thing, like my own path, something I could, I think what is appealing about, about poker for me or back then and, and still today is that with your efforts, you can climb the ladder just by your own effort. There are no politics. And, and obviously 15 years later, there are politics, but back then it was just pure. So you can get, become better and you can climb the ladder and, uh, and you can become successful, not in a monetary sense back then, but more like a, in, a, in terms of like a skill, uh, skill, in terms of a skill set, basically. It's a meritocracy the, where we're judged on the merit of our actions and the, the merit of our decision-making. And I, can I go back just one second? Because you mentioned something that's interesting and resonates with me and that you had two siblings, and I just want to ask you growing up, were you a troublemaker or were you just, were you just like the kid that is like, Fernando's good. Like he, you know, he doesn't get in trouble. We don't have to exert much energy into him. Whereas like maybe one of your other siblings needs more energy allocated to them, right? Is this a thing? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the youngest out of three. And so my mother is Bolivian. So that's why my name is Fernando. It's a Spanish name. And my father is Swiss. And my mother comes from a background, you know, Bolivia is not a very rich country. So she comes from a quote unquote rich family in Bolivia or like a good standing family, sort of like the, the white population in, in Bolivia. And there are obviously also the, the, uh, uh, the people that uh, have been there for hundreds of years, basically, that have no Hispanic background, and they are usually worse off. So, like, my mother has a pretty altruistic viewpoint on life, trying to help other people. And she adopted uh, one of my siblings from Colombia when I was two years old, and my sister it was four years old, and my brother was five years old. So, from the beginning, uh, I was, first of all, already exposed to that caring for others is, first of all, really important. And also that my my brother, the oldest, uh, who who was a troublemaker for sure, uh, needed more attention. My sister, you know, had troubles throughout her life, sort of adapting to, um, I guess, the environment over here in Europe, and and also dealing with, with 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 different issues. She had like a lot of operations throughout her life that uh, affected her like mental capacity essentially. So she always struggled in school. My brother was the oldest, so he was sort of like the breakout kid who's, who's, who's trying to, uh, or not trying to, but was getting into a lot of trouble. And my mother's mother uh, died really young on, on a tumor. So like my mother had a lot of responsibility in terms of like dealing with my brother and my sister, but then also her brother, so now it gets complicated, which is my uncle, is 20 years younger, but it's from the same mother. So basically there was a huge gap and, and my uncle, so to speak, had um, pretty huge issues with drugs. So like he was like a heroin addict for like 10 years straight. And that was right in my childhood. So from my viewpoint, it was like, the last thing I want to do is to get in trouble. Like I'm not going to get in trouble because that's going to get my mother into trouble and that's going to get the whole family into trouble. And these other uh, people around, uh, they already are in trouble. So I cannot basically mess this up. I need to be stable and behave. And I always had like a relationship to drugs, for example, that was very, I was very scared till today to use drugs because I know that it can do a lot of damaging things, not only to yourself, but also to your whole family. So from, from my viewpoint, I was always trying to stay in line. And the expectations from my parents were, you know, I'm sort of the smart kid. I'm not going to get into trouble. I'm going to get through school easily. I'm going to 
I'm going to manage this stuff. Like I'm, I'm basically uh, sort of like cared for. I'm fine. And, and, and that's, that was my reality. So I was trying to behave accordingly. And it's such an easy trap for parents to fall into when one child is struggling. My sister struggles greatly to this day because of situations that are for the most part beyond her control. It's very, you know, if I were my sister, I would be struggling in the exact same ways that she is because of her life experience. Right. But because I did okay in school, I was never in trouble. Most of the energy in my household as related to like checking in and caring and all these things was directed at my sister because she quite frankly needed it. Whereas on the surface, I didn't really need it. And I know that as I grew up and then got into the real world, what I realized was I didn't know shit. And I've kind of been just figuring this out on my own up to this point and like, oh my God, like, what do I do? And so like, I can look back, you know, you mentioned you feel old. I'm three years older than you. And I can look back at like my 20 year old self that decided they wanted to be a poker player. And that's a different human. I don't even recognize that human because they're so immature. They didn't have it, have much wisdom about the world. And so it's just, it's an easy trap for parents to fall into, to kind of, I don't want to say neglect, but not give as much attention to the kid that's, you know, by and large, just staying in line and doing what they're supposed to be doing. Cause it, it appears as if they don't really need help. Absolutely. And, and I had to like work through that. So I worked with Elliot Rowe on like, uh, uh, what is it called? Hypnotherapy. Exactly. And, uh, and a lot of that stuff is related to obviously your childhood and, and, and the way you, like the way you perceive yourself and, and the world in general. And it's exactly the way you say it. It's if your siblings are in, in actual real trouble, it's more difficult to recognize smaller issues. You know, for example, for me, when I was 15, 16 years old, I always had trouble expressing my, my feelings, expressing my opinions because no one had time to really listen to it. So I started creating rap songs uh, in order to write, in order to express myself. And I, and I, and I produced over 100 songs, essentially. And obviously, when you're 15, 16 years, 16 years old, you look at that as, yeah, like that's a, that's a, from my parents' perspective, that's a normal child that is trying to do something like make music seems reasonable. But in reality, what I was trying to do is I was trying to understand myself because I didn't really have someone to juggle ideas with or, or come to when it comes to expressing my true inner self because these problems, they seem so small comparatively to, you know, your, I don't know, your uncle struggles with, uh, with severe drug problems. Like that's a life-threatening situation essentially. So when I became an adult, I had the perception of, I can do anything like I, I, I'm like, I, I, because that, that was injected through my parents, right? Like nothing is impossible. You can do it. If someone can do it, you can do it. You can figure it out. And, and I think as soon as you get a signal that uh, speaks otherwise, uh, you're really confused. Like, wait a moment. Life is hard. It's hard for me as well. And that's really hard to uh, work yourself through and, 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 and accept and say, okay, actually I was living in this bubble and the real world is is a little bit different. And there are other people out there that are smart too. And they 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 have work ethic and they have their shit together. And and now you're on your own out there and, and you have to figure yourself out and better sooner than, than later. Do you ever feel, and I hate, set, I, I hate asking this question, but have you ever felt kind of shortchanged 
and it, in like not gaining the wisdom that you feel like would have been ultra beneficial to you growing up or the lessons, because I mean, this is how I feel. So I could be projecting onto you, but sometimes I feel like, man, you know, if in a different situation where I was properly, you know, I was given the proper amount of attention, I was nurtured properly, given this wisdom on how to be an adult at an earlier age, adult life would have been so much easier. Like it would have just been so much easier to navigate. And I feel like even at 36 years old, I would be way farther along than I currently am. And, And I, the, what I think about is like, you know, these kids who are come from like a wealthy upbringing, right. And their parents are teaching them business and wisdom and all these things, or they have, you know, higher tutors or mentors or whatever it is. And like those kids grow up to by and large, be more successful than the folks that don't have those resources. So anyway, this is a very long winded question on my part, but have you ever felt, you know, short change that like, in a different circumstance, you feel like you would have progressed much, much more optimally than you did. I actually never thought about this that way, but I, it, I think the answer is yes. So I, I want to start off with this um, progression of the way you look at your parents as you, as you grow older that I have read about, which is right. The first you put them on the pedestal because you're I don't know, two years old and they're obviously they're everything. They're God. Yeah, everything you have. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They're God, basically. They, they rule your life and they can do everything you can't do. Uh, so you admire them, you put them on a pedestal, and then you become a teenager and you sort of despise them because they are just like ena- not enabling you to do exactly what you want to do, which you probably shouldn't do anyway. Yeah, because uh, you, you know everything, right? You're the smartest yeah, exactly. human on the planet, right? <laughs> and then as you grow older, uh, you realize these guys are humans. Like, they are humans with flaws, just like myself. And you start to develop this, uh, I guess, this weird sort of like empathy feeling. Yeah, or empathy. Or more like, oh, these guys are humans and they, they don't, they don't, like I'm better than them. I'm better off. I'm progressing faster. Like I, I'm above them in some way. And then the last stage would be sort of like the total acceptance where you say, hey, these guys are just humans. They have flaws just like any other humans. They, they happen to be my parents, but they're just, humans, you know, and who are you to expect of them that they are uh, perfect or, or better than they are actually are. They probably are just trying the hardest, like you are trying yourself to like figure life out, basically. Like my parents had three kids, uh, mid twenties, I'm 33. I have two cats. So like my life is uh, <laughs> like, my life is pretty easy. Right. So it's like hard to, to judge. So I never thought about it in, in sort of a judgmental way. Um, but I was extremely attracted to mentors whatever thought of figure would be like a huge emotional trigger that would motivate me. I would be spending to this day. I mean, I put the, the numbers together a while ago on YouTube and I, I, I spent over six figures on mentorship in the last 10 years, essentially, just to figure out what is that wisdom that I haven't received in some ways. I, I, I spent a lot of hours with mental game coaching, performance coaching. I went into courses and I also do a lot of teaching and coaching since I was a child, since I was, I mean, since I was 17 years old. And I think that's that realization that everyone needs help, everyone wants support, uh, is what got injected through childhood to me. That, that, that I was able to understand this is really important. So I started receiving and looking and seeking for information and help, but I also started giving it and becoming that person in some ways. So I think it's it's strongly related to that. It it could be a major factor as to why both you and I 
eventually turned into poker coaches and wanted to be that mentor uh, guide figure in these folks journey while playing poker. And you're absolutely right. Our parents are fallible. They're human beings. And there are times when, you know, I think back to my childhood and I realize, like, man, my mom was like 28 when that happened. Like I'm seven years older than that. And like, she's just trying to figure shit out, right? Like, how do I make money and pay the bills? And like, how, you know, she's winging it just like everybody else is out there that's just winging it. Um, it's really kind of a surreal feeling thinking about like having memories of your parents and realizing that you're now older than they were in that moment. And like asking yourself, how would I deal with this? And the reality is probably not that well <laughs> either, you know, <laughs> just being, being honest. So yeah, it's a, uh, getting old is, it's a strange thing. <laughs> it's a strange yeah. uh, experience, but let's go back to cards. So you're, you know, you're playing cards, you found cards Poker resonates with you in a way that doesn't resonate with your friends. You're spending your time in online communities. Was that really where you were seeking mentorship, help on your poker journey in the beginning? For me, it was more of a, a, an experience I just had on my own, basically. I, I bought the first books from Harrington, Harrington on Hold'em, like the old-time classics. And I, I remember playing Sit and Goes and like Paradise Poker. And I was drawing up a table, a poker table on a, on a blank sheet, uh, like a physical blank sheet, probably have to reference that today in these day, day and age. <laughs> and I was like noting down whenever a player would be pep with a, like, with, a, with a pencil, because I knew it is important to understand who plays loose and tight aggressive. Like back then, the, the terminology and the understanding of the game was way different, of course, but it, it was taught that there's this like tight aggressive style and there's this loose aggressive style and there's this loose passive player and so on. So I was trying to identify who plays in which way and become better at that. And I, and I was just building up like a bankroll. Uh, sometimes I lost it. I, I remember at, at one time I built up like a $10,000 bankroll on one, two on party poker and the cash games. Uh, back then I was still playing No Limit Hold'em. And that was just incredible. I, like, I printed out a graph. I showed it to my parents. You know, like I, I made $10,000 playing poker. And How old were you? Probably like, nine, like 19 years old or so. And... I think their reaction was more like, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it sort of like fits in line with, yeah, of course you made $10,000. You know, you're a smart guy. You can do your stuff. And I'm like, well, okay. And then I just blew it, of course, in some, in some other way. I mean, on the tables, of course. Uh, and throughout the years, I just realized that poker is a thing and you can actually make money. But it was actually a, a, an experience just on my own for the first couple of years. I didn't even thought about reaching out to someone else and it was more just like me going online and, and reading these books and and uh, being in my own world in some ways where my friends wouldn't do that. But what, what would happen though is I would obviously still go through my traditional educational path. And uh, as I went into my first job, uh, I was playing a lot of poker and I was doing uh, I was doing IT support at a very large uh, corporation for an internship. And at the end of the year they asked me, you know, we're going to give you the job and the education behind it uh, and good salary. I was like 19 or 20 years old or so. Do you want to do this? And I thought about, you know, do I want to go into IT or business? Because the other way that I thought about would be then um, to do a, a bachelor's degree in business. And I decided against IT and, and decided, okay, I'm going to try to study more, learn more and 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 maybe come back to this corporation later with like a better degree or something like that. So 
I went out of this job and applied for a, a bachelor's degree in, in, in econo- economy, basically. And after three months, I was just fed up. I was like, this is way too much math. I'm, I suck at math. I'm not good like, at this stuff. So I just, I just stopped it because I knew that there was another university that would be a lot less heavy based on math and more management. So I was like, okay, let's not do the math thing. I'm going to take a year off and just wait for the cycle to renew so I can go into a un- another university in a different city. And throughout this year, I played poker. And uh, I rented an office because I was already making pretty stable money playing poker. And there was also a local club in my, in my city. In this local club, I started as a dealer. So I dealt cards in order to make some side income, but also because it was just fun doing that. And after like a few months or so, I became the, the head dealer, basically. And I, I, um, I basically uh, trained around 40 other dealers that then also became dealers of the club. So I became more of a manager of the dealers at some point and also played in the club and, and played online, made a little bit of money and left the year with, I mean, it was kind of a crazy year. I was 21. I went out like four times a week, drinking, uh, playing poker online, dealing cards, being in the club, which is similar to like a casino. So it was sort of like my year to have this full, um, you're by your own as a poker player type of experience. And I was just playing around because I knew I'm going to go ahead and study afterwards. So I had this like amazing experience. It was great. But then I went to university in Luzerne, which is like an hour away from, from where I live. So you did end up going to university. Yeah, after. for the second time. And did you graduate? I didn't. Surprise. You did not. so i went to university and it was really interesting actually i liked the subjects i liked the school like i like structure and all this stuff and it was the first time where i realized i'm not um i'm not that smart or competitive or well-trained i don't have as much worth ethic that i as i thought i had because you come across other people that as you say come from a background of where expectations are much higher so they they knew how to perform they knew how to apply themselves very well the first studies that I that I broke after three months, I just put it on the math thing. I was like, I'm not good at math, but like I'm, I'm good at a lot of other things. So let's go ahead and study management. And I was okay in management and in this business school. I wasn't great though. Like there were many people I was probably like in the, in the mid that, that were way better than me. And I realized quickly that it doesn't really matter how much I study. Like I'm not going to be as good as these guys because they are just smarter or they have more talent or they work harder or they, they can work harder than me. It was a little bit disappointing from that perspective because um, for me, I was, I, you know, you have to realize I came into, into the world or, the, or the, the professional world as I can do anything. I can, I, can, I can be the best if I want to. So then I go to business school and realize you can't. You can't be the best. So what am I doing here? I'm trying to... How did it feel to have that realization? You can't be the best. <laughs> well, kind of defeated of, you know, it's like, okay, I... First, the first year, I was really trying to be the best. I was trying to be one of the best, at least. And it worked reasonably well. But then you realize in order to get there, you have to change your whole life and your whole mindset. And I wasn't ready yet to do that. I had a lot of flaws in terms of how much I... I mean, I came from a background of you have to do the minimal effort to get good results. So my impression was if I do a little bit more than I used to do, I'm just going to crush but it required way more than that to crush at this level. So I got crushed in some ways. I still passed all the exams and whatever, but it was, I was not a, an amazing student or anything. I had to put a lot of work into it. Yeah, it's classic, classic mindset trap, right? You, you've always invested the minimum 
and done mm-hmm. well enough and gotten the feedback that you're smart, you're capable, you can do anything you put your mind to. And, you know, the mind is such a tricky thing. And I'm assuming that this is some of the stuff that you went through with Elliot Rowe. But what happens is you your your greatest fear becomes that you are not smart enough and that if you invest yourself fully, what you will learn, what's at risk here is that you will actually realize your greatest fear that you are not smart enough to succeed. And this is like an exact conflict with your self-image and your belief system up to that moment. And so that's a lot of times like me, for instance, didn't study in school, put in the minimum effort. And now looking back on it, knowing what I know now, I realized that what I, what I absolutely didn't want to happen was the thing that made me feel special was that I'm intelligent and smart and capable. And if I tried and invested myself 100%, what happens if I get a C then? Now I have that self-image is shattered. It's disastrous. So it's like you're always giving yourself this out of like, well, I could have done well if I invested myself fully, but I never have. So like, you know, you, we just constantly give ourselves this out. At least that's my experience. Yeah. And, and I worked through that also. So I worked also with many hours to this day, actually. I mean, many hours. I have a weekly session with Jared Tendler. And we, we talked about the imposter syndrome, which basically, I guess the idea is that you don't feel like you're good enough and it eventually comes out. So like, even though I feel this confidence of, growing up, I can do anything. Then it gets shattered into, wait, you can't. What if someone finds out? What if you find out yourself? Okay, this is really scary now. So let's try to sort of hide it. So I went more into poker and I was like, okay, in poker, I'm pretty good. Uh, I'm, I'm making this money. And it was like the the highs of the the full tilt days, essentially. I was playing a lot on full tilt. I was I was studying like even less than minimal. I mean, I went to school to business school with Tom Chambers in my backpack, which was the PLO Bible back then, basically. And just like trying to read and understand how PLO works. And and and, and it came to the point where... <laughs> for, the, for the listener, by the way, uh, I have a copy of this book. And it's, I think it's generously described as a book. It is like hundreds and hundreds of pages of just equity calculations and hand versus hand in PLO. That is like... I sent it to my friend who is a math genius and one of the smartest human beings that I know. And he spent like a couple of days with it and just texted me back like so many numbers, dot, dot, dot. Like it's a very, very dense read. It took me years to actually really read it through and understand it basically. And people were making fun because I, I fall asleep so often with the book on my chest and they make <laughs> pictures and stuff of it basically. It's but not, it a, real, the, it's, it's it, not yeah. a real page turner, that one. Yeah. <laughs> going to put you to sleep pretty quick, basically. Yeah, but I was playing on full tilt. And, and I do remember that I made like $25,000 in, in January, February and March of 2000, and I think nine or 10. And I was like, what am I doing in business school? Like, I'm not, I'm not crushing. I'm not the greatest. It is hard. The topics are interesting. But these, I mean, it's hard and I'm not that good. And, and these guys are much better than me as well. So a year, I mean, it took me like a year or so of like not showing up essentially uh, to the point where uh, you always have these group projects and uh, the tutor would ask, you know, uh, where, who is uh, Mr. Habecker? And no one knew in the whole <laughs> class. I, actually, I had one friend in class and he told me, 
your name was called and no one knew that you're even in the <laughs> class. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not really showing up. So it's kind of a signal here that I, I don't really go to school. But obviously, I was pretty terrified of telling my parents, which are still like, we're still in some ways, like financially backing me up. I was also paying a lot of stuff myself, but at the school specifically not. And, and tell them like, hey, look, I have all these abilities and chances that you guys give me. And, and I have some, you guys believe I have some intelligence, but I'm actually going to waste it on poker. Like saying it that way, you know, and they have no idea what poker is. And, and I mean, no one really in Switzerland had an idea what poker is. There was no like role model or pathway or anything, but it's just like perceived as pure gambling. And so at some point at the end of this year, I decided I'm going to do this. I'm going to take a final step, which is to uh, sign my resignment out of the bachelor's of business school, which basically means you cannot return and make it final, burn the bridges and just say like, okay, I'm all in because I need to really commit now. If I don't commit, uh, I'm going to be really unhappy because I'm always trying to make a decision where should I spend my time? Is it with poker? Is it with the business degree? I'm going to suck at both and it's going to make me really unhappy. So I made this decision. My parents uh, were not super happy, but they said, look, we trust in you, which they always have, right? Like you, <laughs> you can figure it out, but you have to support yourself. That's if you want to do your own thing, you got to also live by yourself. And, and I lived in a student's apartment back then, which means like one room, no kitchen, uh, just like one bed. And I pretended to continuously go to business school to, to remain in the student's apartment so I can play poker in this apartment. And, uh, and I, had fi- I only had, I mean, this is kind of crazy. I had not recommend it for the listener, but I had only had $15,000 to my name. And I said, okay, and $15,000 is not a lot in Switzerland. It's like, actually, it's very, very little money. And I said, okay, this is going to be my bankroll. I'm going to play 50 cent a dollar PLO. And the first thing that I did is I bought... Uh, 10 hours from Jared Tendler, which back then was $2,500 out of my $15,000. And that's also when I sort of like, I don't know what the chronological are, but I know know that I spent basically the other $2,500 on the Tom Chambers book. Um, So I was bound down to like 10K and I I had these two resources to my name. And with Jared, I primarily talked about how to be an adult. Like how do you take responsibility for yourself? How do you structure your day? It wasn't even about tilt. It was just about I am all by myself. I don't know anyone. I want to play poker. And can you help me to be an adult basically and, and, wait, and manage his life? Yeah. Which by the way, is one of the most under studied areas of being a professional poker player is like the logistical side, right? How do I structure my day? What do I do? What do I spend my time on? How do I put myself in a position for success? Because guys like you and I, you know, when I came into the world, it was like, cool. I, I won some money and now I'm an adult. Like, how the fuck do I get an apartment? Like, I have no credit history. Like, how do I go about living? And then, like, I I am so ashamed of the amount of time that I spent, like, you know, going out and getting drunk and being hung over the next day. And, like, you know, poker was, like, my job. And I was lucky enough to be talented enough to be able to, like, survive on, like, 15 hours a week playing. But logistically, I had no plan. There was no schedule. It was very haphazard. And it's just something that folks don't really understand can really just make or break your success as a poker player, understanding these logistical things that need to be in place that set you up for success, regardless of your level of talent and regardless of anything else. It is everything, basically. I mean, uh, being able to apply yourself, basically. There's a book, a very small book, that's called Managing Yourself uh, by Peter Drucker, which is really short, but it 
speaks basically to the biggest league that poker players have, which, especially because they became professionals in their 20s, never really getting used to structure, goal setting, anything, anything professional basically related. I had the advantage in some ways, at least, that I, I almost always was in a relationship with, with, a, with another female, with, with a female, and they would obviously not play poker. So they have like a structured life and a structured job, and, and they want to <laughs> see you like at reasonable times, and they want you to have a reasonable life as well. You have to model your life to, <laughs> for their life. Right? It would help. It would actually help a lot of poker players, like waking up early and stuff. But yeah, so like... For me, the idea to have some a partner to this day that can also shape you in some ways and teach you and show you where you are weak and help you that way, uh, I think that's very valuable, actually. Not and, just a partner, just the people you spend your time with in the poker community. Like, you only, you know, we talk about sample size a lot in poker. And, like, when it comes to life experience and perspectives and the lenses in which you look at things, you only have one. And that's yours. And when other people show you a different lens and a different perspective, it just opens more doors and broadens your ability to think about these things. And like, whether it's, you know, a significant other or a, a new friend that you meet or like, you know, five people in a mastermind, it, 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 can't, it can't not have just a massive, massive effect on the way that you think and the way that you approach, you know, life, poker, everything. And it can be really brutal. Like I, I so I, I was basically in a relationship when I was in business school, and uh, I was together with this girl for five years. And after five years, I was just done as a reasonable human. Basically, I was overweight. I had no structure. I had no drive. I wasn't social. I was just a mess because I was trying to make this poker thing ha- work so hard by just focusing on poker that at some point she just left and I was back there. I remember my apartment. I was like looking into the mirror. I was like, dude, I'm fucking fat. I'm overweight. I'm, I'm fucked in some ways. Like, okay, I know a little bit about how to play poker, but I'm actually like, my life is not that great. You know? So, so then I had a little bit of money build up and I said, okay, I'm just going to focus for the next three months to go to the gym. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about bootcamp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game. 
just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Can we go back before we, sure. we go get in this transformation to, you know, you dropping out of school and you buy the Tom Chambers, Jared Tindler, you're at, you're at 10 K and then we'll make it, we'll make it to the, the transformation in a, in a little sure. bit, but how'd that, how'd that journey go? So it was, I started in January and January was very cold. So basically I was in my apartment and, and my, my childhood was always like my parents look at money in a very, uh, they look at it as a tool, 1000%. So for them, it's completely a, a utility that you use. We went to holidays every single year. They told us, hey, look, we spent all our money in holidays. So it, it, they were joking, but they were saying, if we die, we don't have anything. We just spend all the holidays. And they were kind of, not, they're not really serious, but in some ways they basically told me, hey, look, Money is here to spend it. You need to spend the money to have experiences. That's how life works. So I always had like good food. We went to good restaurants. We had generally a good life, basically. When I was on my own in my student's apartment, I was like, I got 10K and the, the rent is like 700 and I need to buy food and manage life and do stuff and pay taxes and all this stuff. This is, and I don't even know how to do all these things. So I started buying like cheap stuff, trying to be uh, really humble, low-key, and uh, I was eating at home. I was just trying to not go bust, basically. Not go bust is like, because imagine my friends at school are like, what the fuck are you doing? You could do the business major here and whatever. And then the masters and what are you doing? You're just quitting for poker. And then my parents are like, this sounds kind of risky. I guess you know what you're doing. And I'm there sitting on 10K thinking <laughs> if I bust this role, I'm done. Gonna be, it is extremely embarrassing. I have to like get a job and then... I go through this whole process of explaining myself to all these people that are all thinking the same thing. I told you, don't do it, right? So the pressure was intense. And, and obviously with Jared, we worked also a lot on that. Like how do I deal with this pressure of, of expectation? And, and you can work on, on this pressure thing as much as you want. But if you're 21, the pressure is real. Like you don't, you cannot just think, I don't care about these other guys think about me. You're 21, you're just a child basically. Like you're highly influenced by the way your parents think about you. So you, you can't, get rid of it. So I was just trying to really focus on doing everything I can to make this work. And because I burned all these bridges, I, I, I 
uh, I'm not sure what the right English word is, but I basically signed a paper that said, I'm not going to go back to business school. The way is done. So I couldn't do that. I knew that. And I knew this is my, my path forward, basically. I have no chance. This is the only thing that was going to work. It's it like, has to work. Yeah, it's like when uh, a degenerate gambler goes yeah. to the casino and like signs the lifetime self ban at the casino. Yeah. Like, uh, that's what I did. Which, yeah. Which is, which is a thing, by the way, for the listener and the audience, you can actually self ban yourself for, for life from like California casinos and you go on a list. And if you go into any casino, they will escort you out immediately. Like that is a real thing. Yeah. I have a couple of friends that, that, that are banned by themselves. Um, yeah, so the pressure was really intense, but I, I, I started making some money. And I, because I look at money in such a, I'm not sure if utilitarian is the right way, utilitarian way, like I'm, I'm looking at it as a tool. I was like in reinvesting it into more coaching. I bought like PLO courses, got one-on-one coaching with uh, the current PLO 200 best winning player on stars back then just to, just to get some support because I didn't have a community. I was really just still by myself only. Why and, would, um, what, what motivated you to take that path as like, you know, this lone wolf who's now all of a sudden seeking out poker coaches? Like, why did you think this was the path that was going to lead you to success faster than just doing it on your own? I, I think retrospectively, I just am much more attracted by uh, having this sort of like mentor above me where I can say, okay, here is all I am and all I have. How can you help me? And then them to come in and, and basically influence you heavily, right? That's why I worked with, with Jared. That's why I had so many one-on-one coaches because I just I also enjoy the experience. I enjoy this experience of, of uh, working on myself intensively with another person. Uh, and it was extremely helpful, of course, because those were the first interactions I ever had with basically someone else from the outside world. I had some poker friends as well, but... Um, we didn't have really close relationships, but there were very few people in Switzerland that would be playing poker professionally at this point. It was sort of like a, a new thing, obviously, back then. And even to this day, there aren't many people. So in the, in the first six months, I sort of made it work. I started playing different sides. I was building a little bit of a role. And I also shot, took, uh, I took shots basically at NL tournaments as well. Like back then, it was like a Sunday warm-up, a Sunday million. Uh, poker stars had different tournaments with like low entries. And and if I had like a 20K roll or so, or even a 10K roll, I would just play the Sunday million because I was like, well, it's $200 a week. Uh, it's not going to change my bankroll by much. I don't play it every day. I don't play it eight times a day. I don't need the proper bankroll to do it. I'm just going to shot take. And and I shot take continuously and continuously. And back then, NL was really, really soft. Um, maybe to add to that, I was playing NL five years for five years before from 2015 to 2010, basically. So I had some skills in that as well. And uh, I I came far and built like a role. I, I made the final table of like the the warm up or whatever. Maybe I made like twenty k or or fifteen k sometimes, and I would build up my role to like fifty k or so. Uh, and then at this point, my girlfriend's bachelor's degree was over, and I and we had to make a decision: where are we going to move? And I said, I want to move back to to my old town in Basel, basically, because that's where I have my friends and that's where I have my family. And as a poker player, you don't have a lot of friends anywhere in an environment. So I need some people I would like to go back. So we went back and rented the, an apartment. And, and in there, the process began of, okay, I have 50K. What game am I playing? I was still playing PLO, but there was also a local casino. So this, this is before, is this before yeah, yeah, or after? Yeah. This is b- before the physical, okay. 
Exactly. I was still, I was still, uh, that was still the same year basically that, that I turned pro. Uh, and this, this game was in town. I mean, there was a casino, there was a 510 NL game and I, and I never played actually in a casino poker at this point. I was already a professional, never played in a casino cash game or whatever. How come? So, <laughs> it felt, it felt so, it felt kind of like, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, it felt not really a criminal or like gangster, but it felt like a different level of gambling. You know, like there's the roulette, there's the, the, the blackjack. Maybe you have to dress differently. I didn't know the rules. I was just like too nervous to engage in that world. I was, I was just thinking of myself, what if I make a mistake? It's the casino. They're going to throw you out. I had no idea when I was just like a complete beginner. It's, so, so, it's uh, funny because you were lived in the card room, right? You were a dealer. Yeah for that long period of time. And you're just like scared of going in the casino, which is kind of funny to me. Uh, to my, my idea was that the casino has to be very different. Like they all these cameras and all these rules <laughs> and security and whatever, maybe you have to dress different and you can play for cash. So it was a pretty intimidating experience, but at some point I was like, okay, let's, let's try this out. And, and I went to the game and suddenly I realized this is just free money. I mean, these guys, they have no idea. I only played online for the most part and with like super nerds at a card room but these guys are coming. They, they play blackjack and poker simultaneously. They they don't care. Like they just are here to to have fun, basically. So I started grinding that game day in day out. And uh, what and stakes I mean, like, was it? What what game was 5-10. it? Five ten. It was five ten, but you can buy in for like five hundred. And I had maybe yeah, I had like a fifty k roll basically, and I was like, that seems good. And I made like. 25k as well there like three months consecutively i was like i don't need to play online poker this is amazing it's just like free money it's so relaxing you get like good food you get you have waitresses and whatever you you just why didn't i do this years ago yeah, what exactly. was i waiting on i'm gonna get rich basically then after three months they 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 closed the poker area they're like the casino said we're not gonna make enough money with poker so we're just gonna close it so they realized that these blackjack players they're losing all the money at poker at these individuals these young guys and uh, we're out so I made some friends, other professional poker players in my age that were playing live. They played live exclusively almost. Uh, but we became friends because I grinded there for three months. We started studying a little bit together. And they are now in the same situation as myself. They need to play online because the, card, the casino is done. And the card room was playing low stakes tournaments. So we, are, we rented an office together. And I was already studied and played PLO through John, Tom Chambers and different coachings and whatever. And I took them on, under my wing and I said, if we all learn Town Chambers, if we all learn, you know, PLO Quick Pro, John Bopre, all these guys, if we learn from these guys together as a team, we will become better. Why, so did, we went, why did you choose PLO as the game of choice? What led you to that specific decision? Uh, in, in 2010, I think 2010, Full Tit closed down, right? 2011, yeah. 2011. So 2011, Full Tit closes down and I had to move to poker stars essentially and on poker stars i uh, i that was still when i was playing nl i think it was in 2010 where i moved to poker stars for whatever reason maybe i only got frozen or something like that so i moved to poker stars and i moved from nine-handed rush poker on zoom full tilt to six-handed rec tables or on poker stars and i was like i'm gonna crush whatever but the the full tilt nine-handed strategy is you flop a set and you double up and that's it that's the whole strategy and the six-handed stars strategy is like you got to be good and i wasn't so i was getting crushed at no limit like these guys are so good and they're playing day in day out and i can't apply my nine-handed strategy anymore i can't edit it down i have to shift so i shifted to plo 
uh, for that reason, because I felt like this is an unexplored ground. And if I learn everything about this book, uh, I will be the best. So why don't just do that instead of trying to catch up with these other guys that were playing NL for many, many years at, at a much higher level than myself. Uh, that, that was the initial reason. And, and when we moved into this office a year later or so, I was already winning at PLL. I was playing like one, two, two, four. Back then, obviously, the games were much softer. And I told my friends, we could become like this team where we learn together. We make like a study plan. We show up in the office at the same time. And everyone was super hyped about it, of course, until the work came. So uh, <laughs> basically, one by one, they kind of dropped out of the office, uh, realizing that they don't want to, they don't want to do poker that way. Like they like to go to the casino and beat other players who are not professionals by just playing good strategies that they came up up themselves. But actually sitting down and studying is not for them. So they stopped sort of losing obviously online and then they start dropping out of the office and we remained only two. And then the last guy was basically jumping on this supernova elite challenge for himself so i was getting supernova elite twice and in the second year my friend said i'm going to make supernova elite as well but he was only playing low stakes like 25 cent 50 cent plo so you had to play 450,000 hands in two months uh, which is a very uh, scary experience and he did it and after he was done we met at new year's basically because he had to grind until new year's <laughs> to actually make it happen and he came to me because I lended him 10K to continuously play so he can get the 20K bonus from Stars in Supernova Elite. And he came to me and said, I did it. I got the 20K. I'm, I'm going to stop playing poker. I'm done with online poker, basically, because he just grinded himself to the ground. So I was left alone at the end in the office. And then I also quit the office and decided, okay, let's play at home because what's, the, what's really the purpose of staying here in this big office if we're only by myself? Um, and, and that was like 2000 and. 13 or so in the beginning. And then mid 2013, my girlfriend left me and I was like, okay, I am, I'm not in good shape. Like I'm not doing well. I went three months to the gym and I was just like trying to get fit and get my life together in some ways, and, which, which is, which, which I did. And I also had like, I mean, I had a difficult time, you know, like my girlfriend left me. I was thinking to myself, what am I doing with my life? Is poker that important to you that everything just goes to the ground and to hell? So I was doubting myself. Um, no, I never thought about quitting actually. I don't, I don't know why, but it was more like, I need to make this, I need to make this work. That was my mindset more so. Um, and even though I was questioning myself, what am I even doing? It wasn't the poker in itself. It was more like the way I'm approaching it. I'm, I'm, why is this poker dragging me down? Why can I not have a good life and play poker? You know, why, why can I not have good relationships with poker? Like what is, what is wrong with me sort of not with poker. So I was trying to work through that. And at, in September, 2013, I was in a pretty difficult position. I had like 20K left or something like that, maybe 40K left. And I was playing uh, sit and goes because they had lower variance and I can build up my role again. So I was moving from PLO to sit and goes just because my bankroll became shorter and shorter and shorter. And I was like, okay, I need to, I need to not go bust. Let's, let's grind these sit and goes and make it happen. And I was still shot taking. So I took a shot at the Sunday Million in September of 2013 and won the Sunday million, which was a crazy experience. I won $180,000 overnight. So I went from like 20 or 40 K roll or so to over 200 K roll. And it was like, the year was so tough for me. This year was so tough for me that I was like, this is just, this is just sort of destiny in some ways. Like somehow I sacrificed so much this year. Like my girlfriend is gone. Um, I had to like work through this whole diet and emotional struggle to this point where now 
I won the Sunday Million and I'm back in the game, so to speak. Now I have time to work on myself more and and have some breathing room, basically. That was a, a really big point in my career. Can you take us back to the moment that you win the Sunday Million? Because I think it's important to verbalize this shot taking and the effect that it can potentially have on your career when you know it's a $200 tournament you have $20,000 to your name that's like 100 buy-ins it's not like make or break if you bust or whatever however the upside of actually taking it down is so massive because it gives you this cushion and it you can move up stakes right there's only one way to exponentially increase your hourly rate uh, well, there's two ways. You can like double your volume or you can just move up to the next stake on the list. And so like it, it's essential to keep moving up because then you get out of this cycle of like just barely making enough money to survive and pay your taxes. And your, your bankroll is like always about the same amount, no matter how much you're winning or what your win rate is. And it's just so important to get out of that. And so with that in mind, what were your feelings and thoughts as that last river card comes out and you you win the Sunday million. I think it was more like a relief. Like, okay, I got time to figure myself out because I think most poker players that didn't quote unquote make it, they have that inner, I'm not sure if this is going to be sustainable. I'm not sure if, if I'm sacrificing too much. To a lot of people that, that, I'm, that I'm talking today, they have a job, they are trying to make poker work. They're trying to turn full time. It's so, it's so difficult. And you're self-doubting yourself all the time. Am I not, am I sacrificing too much of my life, my relationships, my life quality, my gym time, my diet to make this dream work. And, and, and that's obviously at top of my mind after this year, which was really difficult for me to, to, to then win the Sunday and be like, all right, let's take a break. Let's reevaluate. We have time. We have breathing room. I'm not going to go bust. I'm okay. You're safe. Uh, yeah, I'm safe. Exactly. And that's probably the first time I felt really safe. I was like, okay, um, I don't have to do this tomorrow. I can take a little bit of time off in order to get my life in order and, and get myself in order, essentially. So it was, it was mostly just relief. And then what happens next? After your bankroll shoots up to around 200K, after the Sunday million, you're reinventing yourself. When does streaming enter the picture? And then yeah. you know, when does your new partner enter the picture. So in 2013, I started playing higher stakes. Then I was like, okay, let's play 2-4. Let's play 5-10. I started having good results on that. And I think in 2015 or two, uh, 2014, I was subscribed to Run It Once, so Run It Once Poker, the training site. And Phil Galfond was making this announcement. He said, I'm going to review someone's footage. Submit. I said, great. I'm, I mean, I'm probably not going to get picked, but I'm just going to submit something. So I played 5-10 PLO, submitted the footage uh, without commentary, just like the footage, so you can review it. And he took that. So he took it. And I was like, that was just, uh, I mean, flabbergasted. I was like, wow, Phil Galfond reviewing my footage. I'm like this random guy from Switzerland. And suddenly I'm in the video with Phil. It's amazing. In some ways. <laughs> it's amazing how big of an influence Phil Galfond is because like he takes this 510 video, right? And you feel flabbergasted. Yeah. You win the Sunday million and you just feel relieved, right? It's like a, a much stronger emotion that Phil Galfond is like reviewing yeah. your shit. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Then he, well, he reviews the video and he's like, I can't really comment much. This is all good. And I'm like, well, oh, wow. what? I don't understand. And then he, then they sent me a hiring offer. Okay, 
do you want to make videos for us? Because this is really good stuff. Let's make videos. And I'm like, well, I never made a video. So, but obviously I'm going to say yes. I mean, it's Phil Galfond, right? I'm obviously going to say yes. And I was always interested in coaching and, and I got a lot of coaching myself. So I was like, okay, let's make some videos. So I started making some videos and I basically um, had to create 26 videos for the, for the first contract, basically. Where you make 26 videos, you get a set amount, and then we reevaluate. Started making videos, and the videos uh, got me also some one-on-one students. Uh, I didn't even ask for it, but it happens naturally that people like your video. They're going to approach you. Do you do one-on-one coaching? And first, I was hesitant, but then I was like, well, I know how these other guys coach me. I, maybe I can help other people as well that are playing kind of like lower stakes or something like that. So we started doing coaching. I started making videos. And at the end of this period, which was in 2015, then after the 26 videos, they wanted me to renew and say, okay, let's make another 26 videos, for example. Uh, also, like they increased the offer for the videos. And I said, well, I would really like to do that. But I also want to try out this Twitch thing. This Twitch thing seems to be really growing right now. I saw Jamie Staples is playing it and, and, and not many people are playing poker there right now. But I like to do some content somehow in a, in a, in a sort of an independent way. How can I do this? So I approached them and said, hey, I want to do Twitch and I also want to do your thing. And they said, like, well, we can't allow you to do both. You can do either or the other. And then I was like, well, I want to try out this Twitch thing, I guess. And I, I saw the first step for me t- uh, as Twitch. Like, okay, Twitch is their own new thing. It's independent. I can just see what happens. And I had this elaborate plan where I would be like, it was a horrible plan if you look backwards at it. But, but Twitch was completely new. So I was like, I'm going to be streaming uh, five days a week or six days a week. I'm going to play a, a different game every day, which is a horrible idea um, because it's really hard to win at different games every day and no one really understands all the games and whatever. But I, I basically hired like a graphics designer and, and her husband was a pro gamer on Twitch with a contract and whatever. So she helped me to get like partnered in like a week, which was really new back then. Uh, and, I, and I suddenly started streaming and I came up with this challenge. So at some point, I mean, pretty soon I realized, okay, let's play just PLO because I need to also make some money. And if I play Limit Hold'em 2-4, which I don't know how to play, okay, the stream doesn't like it that much. And also, I'm not going to make any money. I'm just going to lose some money. So let's play PLO. And at some point I came around the idea, okay, let's make a challenge out of this. Let's make a 100K challenge. And it's a a little bit of a weird description of calling it because the idea was let's move the 20K bankroll to 100K. So I was just like showing my cash here and saying, I have 20K. I'm gonna make a hundred. I'm gonna move it to a hundred k, playing two five on stream. And the rules are: it has to be a, a, all on stream, and um, and I have a hundred days time. So it's like a hundred k in a hundred days, but it's actually eighty k in a hundred days. And I streamed five days a week for like six hours, and that was actually so that was in 2015, and that's when I came together with my girlfriend, and I'm still together today. And we are just like fresh together, like one week, two weeks in. I started streaming and uh, streaming is really intense. A lot of people underestimate like how intense streaming is because you're talking just by yourself for hours and hours. You've got these like spotlights on your face and you have to make decisions and there's pressure. You don't want to tilt off. You, there's a lot, of, it's a lot of intensity going on. So I was actually moderating the stream in my sleep. And I'm together with my girlfriend for like a week. And I'm like in, the, in sleep, she tells me, I mean, she tells me in the morning, you were sleeping and saying things like, welcome to the stream. This is Jane Anders <laughs> and we're playing some 2-5 PLO. And she's like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. This is intense stuff. This is intense. I have this 100K challenge. He's like, this guy is strange, but in some ways driven. Okay. So I was just streaming 96 days, basically. I mean, almost in a row. 
And I made it to the 100K and completed this challenge. And in the last month or so when I was doing that, uh, I I, re- I got a lot of coaching requests. People see, saw like, okay, this thing, this guy is, is is clearly beating the stakes. He's crushing. He's he's explaining his thoughts maybe in a, in a in a concise way. Let's ask for coaching. And I I was like, okay, I, I mean, I could do some coaching. So let's put together some coaching packages. And I was selling ten hours for two thousand five hundred dollars. And I said, okay, I have a coaching package for ten hours, two thousand five hundred dollars. And um, I, there was no description. It was just like, this is the coaching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buy I it. sold, yeah, exactly, and that was in October 2015, and I sold like 40, so I, I made like wow. 100k in like a month doing the coaching, and I was like, what, what is, what, what am I doing? This thing, this coaching thing is actually pretty interesting. Um, a lot of people would like to to learn and and get this coaching out, and I I'm the only guy on Twitch and PLO. I get some audience, and this is cool. Like something is going on. So I started coaching people and doing the challenge. And this was the most intense time. I mean, actually, I will probably take that back now. But it was one of the most intense times then uh, because I was streaming six hours and coaching like four hours afterwards. And coaching is also intense. Like people don't care about you. It's all about them. So you have to really give your energy to someone else for like four hours straight to like four individuals. You have to remember what their problems are, what their leaks are, what they want. And you also have to value the hour. They pay per hour. So you need to deliver on point. You need to be there. Um, so I was obviously uh, burning myself out. And by the end of the year, I was like, okay, I can't do any of this anymore. Let's just go back to... So I was at a, at a cross path, basically. I was saying to myself, either you're going to continue this like Twitch coaching thing, or you're just going to do poker and you become the best poker player you can be. Which is this sort of like, more simple, clean way of handling the profession, you know, like this ultimate dream, you become this athlete, a monster at the table. And obviously I chose the latter because it sounds more appealing. And it's like, I don't want to have all this stress. I don't want to be accountable to other people. I just want to do my own thing. And, and then I went into this hyper mode of let's just try to become as good as I can. And after three, four five months or so, or even six months, I was even more burned out because I had so high expectations of myself to become much, much better than I was. And I was reaching a a certain cap that I was even more unsatisfied because I was doing something I didn't like as much, like working this hard on the game without doing anything else and having really high expectations was just a losing recipe for me. I I, want to talk too about just the nature of both endeavors. They seem similar, but they're very different. And coaching, you're in service of your student. And streaming, you're in service of your audience. And when you decide that I'm going to be the best poker player I can be, now it becomes all about you. So, you know, effectively, like you had become in your burnout, the last guy in the office, right? Like you had become that guy who's like, I'm just over this. I'm totally burned out. And then you decided to focus on yourself and then that didn't work out so well either, right? After like six months. Yeah, I think the desire was basically, I want to I wanna take care of myself. Because when you do a lot of coaching, you take care of other people, which yep. is great, but there needs to be a balance. And if there's no balance, you are completely empty at the end of the day. You gave everything you had to other people. When you coach people, they don't, you know, in general, they don't, they're not like, hey, how about you? You know, how's, how's it going for you? How are things rolling out? They, they want to use their time, which is obviously, which makes sense. But they want to be like, hey, I have this leak. Can you help me? Can you fix me? Can you understand? I have this mental leak. Let's talk about it. So I went into this, uh, let's maximize my potential idea. 
let's become the best poker player I can be, which I think a lot of people are very attracted by it. And, and I think it was unsatisfying because I wasn't making as much progress because it takes time and it's hard. And also I realized that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like the best poker player. Like I'm not as like the effort I put in is probably the same effort as Ben 86 puts in. It's the same effort, but he gets much further because he, he is, he has more talent for the game. He's smart about studying. It's just more his thing. He has more when it comes to the specific area. And so I think, a lot of people work really hard on something, but what they don't realize or consider is that maybe it's not the right thing they're working on. Maybe they should move a little bit into a different direction, but they have this, I, they have like this guy on a pedestal that they think they could be, but they can't in reality. You can't be someone else. You're only you. That's it. And you have to live with it. And you have to be self-aware to understand what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And yeah. for me, I realized that I don't have the same strengths that lead to the same trajectory as someone like Ben 86. I don't, I'm not him. So yep. I need to find some alternative. Yeah. You, you we're not paying attention to your gifts, right? You spend a hundred days, you run it up, you have a big Twitch following, you post a package with no sale co- sales copy at all. And just tell people, yo, you want coaching, go click this. You sell a hundred packages, which is like a massive success. No, 40 like, packages. 40. Yeah. 40 packages, you make 100K. It's a massive success, right? And obviously, it's validating to your market. It's validating to your Twitch stream. You have all this success. Um, It's just kind of funny looking back on it. Like, it's so clear that this is where you're obviously thriving. And instead, you went the other direction to kind of try it out. It's, yeah, in hindsight, you, again, self-awareness. And it's, it's, there's so much... I wouldn't necessarily call it, it's not ego, it's more lack of self-awareness. Like you're, you're trying to figure yourself out and the easiest way to do that is to say, who, who do I want to be? But the better question is, who are you already? And then reverse engineer what that means. Yeah, and this is the, the massive, massive benefit of coaches and having trusted opinions of folks who know you and know your talents and know your skills and they can say, look, man, you're crushing this thing. Like you are thriving at this thing in a way that you've probably never thrived at anything else. Like spend your time on this. But if you don't have that, it's a lot harder to weigh the options against one another and really make a decision that's in your best interest. Cause you just don't have that lens or perspective to see the situation as clearly. Yeah. I think what a lot of people are doing is they're trying to find the vehicle that will get them to success. For example, uh, high stakes poker, or um, you know, you open up this business, but you are the vehicle, and you need to understand what the vehicle, what kind of assets and functions does the vehicle have? Where is it weak? Where is it strong? How how fast can it drive? Is it is it uh, well exactly like who like what do you bring to the table, and then figure out what does that result into in terms of success? How can you be successful with what you already bring to the table instead of uh, finding the most attractive vehicle out there and then trying to jump on it, which is kind of through social media, you see a lot of vehicles out there, or they at least pretend that they have the vehicle and say, this is the path to success. And then you think to yourself, well, this sounds like a great path. I'm going to do it. But what is not in the calculation is yourself. Like, are you the right person to do it? And then another part of the calculation is, is this guy a fraud or is this actually working? And which is also very common these days. And is what's working for that guy, will it work for me? I mean, Gary Vee says, sleep four hours a night. Okay, if I do that, 
I'm a piece of shit. Like I am, my brain doesn't work. I cannot function. I do everything at a much lower level. So like that is not a thing for me. I know specifically I need nine hours of sleep to function at a high level. And also I've learned over time that not only do I need nine hours of sleep, but like I imagine if my system booting up, it's like an old computer, right? Like it takes time for my system to like, you know, boot up and get ready for the day. I lay in bed for one hour every morning on purpose because I know that if I wake up and just get straight out of bed, I'm not the same. Like I don't have that solid state drive of some people. They could just wake up and they're shot out of a gun and they're ready to go. Like that's not me. So I sleep nine hours and I stay in bed for a full hour before I even let myself get out of bed. And I've just found that like that's where I find my optimal self. That's how I operate optimally. And like, that's not going to work, you know, for you. That's not going to work for people in the audience. But take the time to understand yourself and what works for you. And don't just take somebody else's word for it, right? Like you have your life experience of one. So pay close attention to you because you can live your whole life taking advice and wisdom from folks that are not you. And never realize that you're selling yourself short. It's such an easy and simple mistake to fall into that's like, oh, this dude sleeps four hours. Like, I need nine? Why am I a lazy piece of shit? Like, you're not a lazy piece of shit. You just need more sleep than they do because your biology is different. You're a different human being, right? Exactly. And that that judgment is is really hard to get rid of of the judgment because obviously people are trying to sell you something by putting judgment on it. You know, the reason you're not successful is because you sleep nine hours. Okay, that's a lot of judgment there. Okay, so you need to change something, but maybe that's not the case. I actually hired, for example, a high performance coach that is not related to poker in, I think, 2016. And he told me, wake up every day at 4 a.m. And I did. And it was horrible. I woke up at 4 a.m. I only slept like four hours and I played this... I woke up at 4 a.m. to play the best games on stars, essentially. And, uh, and I told him, you know, like, I, I, I need more sleep. And he says, like, well, these are like these, these um, limiting self-beliefs. And obviously now, as I'm older, I'm like, no, it's sleep. It's, it's like biology. Yeah, it's limiting like, it's biology yeah. Uh, <laughs> construction, right? Like, uh, th- this last month, I, I launched, uh, I call it a team in my private Slack channel. And it's just specifically built on the logistical side of like, they have a physical block every day. They have a mental block. They have a spiritual block and keep track of these three blocks and invest time into all of them. And one of the major components is like, how much sleep do you need? This is the first thing that we plan your entire day around is you sleeping optimally. And then what are the things you do during a day that make your spirit happy and fulfilled? Right. And for most of them, it's, you know, spending undistracted time with their spouse or their significant other, like cooking for them or serving them in some way. And it's like, this is important. Do not skip this because, like, this makes your spirit happy. It makes you healthy and, like, the physical and mental. And so, like, I'm just learning. I'm applying everything I've learned about the logistical side with this team. And, like, they send me an accountability video, like, every night and I watch it. And, like, it's just so amazing the change and the difference that these people feel and that it makes in their poker career when they're doing things in a healthy way. That's not like, you know, wake up at 4 a.m. and, you know, 
grind for 12 hours like you're Nanonoko. You're not fucking Nanonoku. Like, I'm not Nanonoku, right? Like, I am not Randy Liu. I, I can't do this ungodly thing he's capable of doing. Like, I'm Brad Wilson, and I need to work, you know, within that model to maximize myself. Self-optimization, exactly. And that requires self-awareness. And I think we spend, generally speaking, a lot of time watching other people's lives without really thinking about how do we work? How do we function? What do we want? Who, we, who do we are? Yeah. And, and tying it back to, to 2016, I guess, I realized I had something going there. Like if I would, okay, I cannot be the best PLO player in the world. I just can't because only one person can, in fact. And it's apparently not me. So I have to be okay with that and sort of re realize it and respect that and say, okay, self-awareness. You cannot be the best PLO player. But if you combine your strengths together and you build an intersection, you, you are good at coaching, you are empathetic, you understand how people think, you can help them and influence them. You understand the game. You worked in the game for like 10 years or so. You do know you have something to, to share. You have something to coach people with. If you combine those two things together, maybe you actually... Uh, can become one of the best at this at this intersection of things, and um, that represents a lot more my values and also my strength set. So I started combining those two things together, and then hopping more on this path of okay, I'm playing poker and I really enjoy playing poker, but the goal is not to just move up in stakes indefinitely and 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 be only a poker player because that wouldn't make me happy because I would leave all these other skill sets on the table. That I that I want to execute on, and live by. Basically, it's also really nice to give back to people and help them. Essentially, it's a fulfilling feeling, right? And I don't want to miss that. And um, so I realized at the at, at the mid of the year or so that okay, I want to get back on Twitch, and I went into it with less expectation. So I just said, okay, let's just start streaming. No challenge. If someone wants coaching, that's awesome. But I'm just going to stream. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm I'm, I'm just going to try to see what this independent path and this intersection has to offer uh, for and put myself out there essentially so there are two things here the first thing you mentioned a word that stands out to me specifically you mentioned the word values um it intersects and it aligns more with your values so what are your values yeah that's a really good question because we also talk a lot about that in the in the company and and we're going to get to that in a moment but like the way i think about it is we have like a vision at the top also for our company, but like how you want to, like what kind of company you're trying to build, essentially, what are you standing for in terms of what are you trying to change in the world? And then below that, you have the culture of the company, which are based on the values that you guys believe in. And then below that, you have strategy, which means how do you get there? And most people approach life as well as business. I mean, some people business in a way where they only think about strategy. How do we get from A to B? They just skip the whole cultural thing, the whole value part. They just want to go from A to B and figure out what is the easiest way to get there. And you will come into conflict with your values when you do that, because at some point you realize, wait a moment, I'm trying to become good at the wrong thing. It's not something I'm trying to actually accomplish. Well, so, Simon Sinek, you know, start with why. Mm -hmm. why. Why are you doing this? Also, here's like a funny thing that I did kind of arbitrarily. I have my daily newsletter and I sent one out. And one night I sent the future of chasing poker greatness. And it was because I was considering making content for pokercoaching.com and Jonathan Little. And like, I wanted to get it out there, what my values were and what my vision was for 
this endeavor, you know, this company that I, that I'm building. And what I was really trying to figure out was like, does this align with me making content with pokercoaching.com? Like I was trying to like solve this problem. So I, I wrote this out in a newsletter and I felt anxiety before I sent it because I was like, this is so just about me. Like, this is so like selfish and like pointed all directly, like at me and what I want to accomplish and what I want to do. And so I sent out the newsletter and dude, I'm not shitting you. I got replies. Like people were excited about this vision. They, they were asking me, how can I help? Like, I, w- I want to give you my time for free just to help you make this vision because of how hard you're working and what your beliefs are. And so like when you skip that, when you skip the community, the values, the culture, the vision, you skip the most important part of whatever it is you're trying to do. Because if people understand your vision, your story, like it's not just about getting coaching with Coach Brad anymore. Now it's getting coaching with Coach Brad so that I can help support his vision for chasing poker greatness. And that is such an important distinction that like if you're an entrepreneur or getting started in e-commerce or whatever your dream may be, really, really, really invest time and energy into your vision and your values so that people know, you know, like, is this money going to like a swimming pool that Brad's going to try to like jump into like Scrooge McDuck? Like where, where does the money go? What's it, what's it, what's everything building and working towards? It's just, it's such a pivotal part of the journey of an entrepreneur. And like you said, people just skip over it and then they don't know. And people don't know, what they're investing themselves in. And it can just make all the difference in the world between success and failure. And I think likewise to that, if you, if you talk to friends, if you have relationships with other people, it's oftentimes an undiscovered question. Like what are, what is like, why do you live? Like what is, why do you do this all for basically? Like what are you dreaming about? Like that's, people don't really talk about that, but it actually, I talked to um, a friend of mine recently that that read this book called uh, what is it called? Uh, twenty one lessons for the twenty one century. Um, the guy who also wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus, and I think in Homo Deus they say if you uh, use the like button on Facebook ten times, then Facebook knows you more than your teammates in your company. And if you press it more than thirty times on thirty different articles or or photos and whatever, then Facebook knows you better than most of your friends. And it's because you allow yourself to be honest. You like the cat video. Okay, you like the cats, but are you telling your friends you like the cats? You know, you probably, maybe you don't. So a lot of people hide back and the, qual- the lack of quality in conversations, I think is, yeah, it's kind of alarming. And, and I think it's, it, it then continues into the way you express yourself as a coach or as a company. What are you actually standing for? What are you trying to change in the world? What are you trying to accomplish? Why are you doing all this? For me, like, one thing that I, that I always took with me is just like never stop learning. Like you want to keep improving. You, you want to also help others to have the same mindset. It's sort of the growth mindset, basically, like to not put self-limitations on yourself. Obviously, if you uh, can't sleep four hours because there is a, there's an actual limitation, that's fine. But uh, there are still a lot of like limiting, actual limiting beliefs about yourself and what you can do and how you can t- continuously become better whatever that could mean in the world and striving for that is something that just, I guess, comes with my DNA. And we talked about childhood experiences and, and, and what kind of values came through that. And one of them was the desire to get help and then afterwards help others. So that's then the other value is to reach back up 
like you you mount you climb the mountain and as you know i have learned with my family if someone else is in trouble in the family you reach up if you if you live in a rich country you adopt someone from colombia who's you know from the streets like that's i didn't do these things i'm not trying to like praise myself i'm just saying like this was injected into basically like my whole childhood that this is important this matters you just don't live yourself life by yourself you care for others trying to help them as well um, th- those are like the the two main ones and for me just for me personally it's just um one of the things i think the most about is just that this all it's kind of a scary feeling for a scary conversation for some people but this whole thing will end like your life will end and i think a lot about that uh, that your life is just over at some point and you have a limited time so what can you do to make the best the absolute best out of it uh, like similar to like Bill Perkins, die with zero. Like how can you die with zero regrets, regrets basically? Not only with zero money, but also like how can you live life to the fullest? And one of the conversations I have almost the most with, with my mental game coach, uh, Jared, is I feel like, you know, life is, goes by so fast. Every week we meet and it feels like a day and it's just, you know, 10 years are just like that. And it's a little bit of a scary feeling. But at the same time, if you make a conscious effort to trying to get the most out of it, uh, you can die with base with less regrets essentially, and that's what I'm where I'm trying to go to, and also help others to see it the same way, so that they are not feeling like they're wasting their time, they're wasting their lives because you never know when when it ends essentially. So those are like the key the key ones. And there's a quote that I love that that says the days are long, but the years are short. And I've just found that so true in my own life that every day feels very long and the years feel like they're just getting shorter and shorter and time is just passing at this pace that was unimaginable as like a a kid, you know, a year was like this eternity. And now a year is like, it seems almost instant that everything just changes. And, um, you know, going back to what you're saying about the biology and then the self-limiting beliefs and a good way to think about it is like always believe your biology, never believe your, your self-limiting beliefs, never believe that stuff because those are the things that, you know, your brain tries to protect you and in trying to protect you, it will lie to you. And a lot of times it wants to keep you small. And I just know that human beings are so much more powerful than they give themselves credit for. That doesn't mean you can only live on four hours of sleep It just means you're capable of greater things if you kind of shed these self-limiting beliefs or question them, dive into them, and, you know, just try to grow on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, again, I think some people, I guess not when they're listening to a podcast like that because they're already open to the idea, but some people just think, you know, this is all all just like theory or whatever, but it's not. It's highly practical, but you have to start with like really small things, you know, like if you tell someone, Hey, you could just quit your job and live on an Island. That's probably too big of a jump. To, <laughs> yeah. You know? Is this possible? But it's, it, you probably shouldn't start there, but maybe you should be starting a little bit smaller. Hey, you could actually start going to bed an hour early. You could actually start working a little bit less. You could actually take on a side project. You could do this. You can do it. You can like learn. You yeah. Can become better. And most people, especially as you get older, you start resigning you're like, okay, I, Maybe I can't do it. I'm too old. I, I, I don't have enough time anymore. I'm not going to get into this. And it always sounds so 
extremely old, but as you say, time goes by really quick. And some 20 year old is, you know, listening to this right now. I'm thinking, yeah, these guys sound like they're 80. I tell you, you, you snap your fingers, you're 30. Like it's so, it's so fast. So make the most out of it and also strategize. That's what I'm trying to basically get to. You got to strategize to figure out what you actually want out of life, not the money behind it, the experiences that you want. What kind of life do you want is actually something you have, a, you, you can decide. Yeah. You have to strategize and apply yourself. And going back to that question, you know, like, do, do I want to live on an island by myself? Um, and there's a bunch of steps in between, right? It's like, I want to live on an island someday, right? And then this becomes a goal. It becomes a driving force, whatever your big goal is. But the first step is even questioning that goal, like questioning, mm-hmm. do I really want to live on an island? Like, is this a, because how horrible would it be to take all these steps from today to finally you move into your private island and then you realize, holy shit, I don't like this. This is not even a thing that I, I wanted that I've spent my whole life force working towards. So like investing your energy into like imagining, is this a thing that I even want? Like whatever your greatest dream or desire is, like question that, get to the root of it and figure out what you're really chasing because it, there, there's nothing more wasteful than pursuing something that even if you catch it, doesn't give you the fulfillment that you are searching for at the end of the day. Yeah, I remember a quote that, that goes very similar to that. There's nothing worse than like failing at the wrong thing, basically. And or, yeah, like, we're succeeding at the wrong thing too. <laughs> yeah, as well, I, <laughs> um, I, I, have, I struggled with that a little bit in the past where I was, I was trying to think about who do I want to be in five or 10 years? And, um, and the reality is, you can't know. It's just all because let's imagine you want to be a certain person in five years. Well, in, in, in a year from now, you're going to be at a completely different place than right now. You probably have improved yourself. You know more. You have new opportunities. You lost some other ones and you, com- you completely changed the whole path. And if you would hold on to this vision you had about yourself, who you're going to be in five years or 10 years, then you would actually harm yourself. You would actually harm what you truly want. So the only thing you can do is you can evaluate what are your values right now? Who, who are you actually? What do you value? And then what are the next steps? What are the next steps in the next, or today, the next week, the next month? That's, that's all fine. But then you have to reevaluate again. And this continuous reflection and reevaluation of where you're heading in life, it doesn't stop. And sometimes we stop it, but the time goes on. And then you just didn't progress into the direction you wanted to actually and five years have passed and then you feel a lot of regret. So this habit of just always reevaluating, am I doing the things I actually want to do? Do I realize that this time is finite? At some point it's done. Am I, am I happy? Am I okay with that based on the actions that I take today? And it's a very hard question, you know, like, especially when you go to someone that is older than yourself and say, hey, do you think you lived the last 10 years exactly the way you want it? It's a very painful question to ask yourself. Um, but it's necessary because even though, even if, if you could say, no, I actually should have changed a couple of things. Now you can change them going forward. And it requires this pain and realization to then take action and change something instead of saying, well, I'm, you know, it was fine. I can't really change it anyway. So I'm just going to like live until I die. And, and then that's it. So that thought really, that's like the thought, I guess, that keeps me up the most at night. Like, how can I make the most out of this before I, go, well, I have to go basically? Yeah, uh, Bronnie Ware, I believe she is an Australian hospice nurse, wrote a a famous book 
the regrets of the dying. And the number one regret of the dying is that they didn't live a life that was true to themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's something that has also kept me up at night and made me ask the question, am I living a life that's true to myself? Like, is this going to be me when I'm on my deathbed looking back? Like I left something on the table. I didn't give it as much as I could. And then, you know, that's the end of life. But I also want to go back to the beginning of life because this is a thing that I learned in like the last couple of weeks that just kind of blew my mind are these expectations that are set on children. What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, you know, what are you working towards? What do you want to be? And like, you know, they have an answer. And I read this statistic that said 65% of the kids in elementary school right now will have jobs that do not exist today. And I just want to make it this point that like we create these expectations. These kids imagine themselves doing these things in life and nobody has any fucking idea what's going to come down the pipeline in 15 years or what the world will look like. So that just seems like a very poor way to go about planning your life and your future and how you spend your time in existence on this planet. Exactly. I think the, I mean, first of all, you are not your job. It's also a good way to think about it. Like you're not a job. You're, you're you, you're who you are basically. And in terms of kids, I mean, I don't have any kids, but I think what going back to the beginning, what probably is most helpful is to show and tell your kids that effort brings you a long way. You know, if you put in the effort, you can do the things you want to do. And that's true. And praising effort is, is really helpful. And, and even today, I have to remind myself, okay, let's compare result versus effort. Am I trying to celebrate a result? Am I trying to celebrate the effort behind it, the process, the, 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 the optimizations? And I catch myself very often that I, I'm not aware of the improvements I've made. I, I, I'm, I cannot recollect how, do I, how did I get here? And if you don't know how you got here, you can A, not replicate it or teach it, but also you cannot celebrate it. It feels almost like luck. How did, how did I get to this point? But by becoming more self-reflective on the process, uh, which is a good word because I listen to a lot of the process uh, podcast, <laughs> by focusing on the process as well as focusing on, um, well, the process as well as the uh, effort behind it, you start to realize, hey, I did all these things. Like that's what should be rewarded and celebrated and not that I'm randomly at this point because I know that if you, if you achieved some success and you don't know how you got there, you will feel like you're not there rightfully. You feel like uh, the imposter syndrome again. Okay, why am I here? It was just luck. Okay, I, I'm just lucky. I could fall apart any day. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. 
As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, you'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. We, we have this tendency, I think it's in our nature, to always be looking up at the things we need to do and the next step, the next thing we need to accomplish, right? And we, we don't spend enough of our energy looking down and celebrating what we've done, finding joy in the, the progress that we make on a day-to-day basis. And what I think that leaves us as is just more fragile, you know, we're just more fragile human beings that we haven't verbalized why we're in this position. We've never celebrated the steps that have taken, that we've taken in our journey. And therefore, we don't know, you know, it's like we, we, we've never celebrated these things. So like all we can look at is the next thing. And like, that's the next goal, the next accomplishment, the next thing. And if we do, if we do take pride and feel the joy in the things that we do, I feel like you know, we avoid this imposter syndrome, right? We know who we are. We know why folks are going to be paying us a lot of money for coaching because we know our value and we know, you know, we have confidence in ourselves. And like, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing, this diving deep into the mental game aspect of life and, you know, dealing with our emotions, the the pain, the regret, the anxiety, acknowledging them, like truly acknowledging them, right? Because we, you know, I talk a lot about recovery in my my team. We talk about recovery equals performance. And the folks who can recover faster are going to be the highest performers. And that means feeling the pain of like having a bluff snapped off, right? Like making a mistake or, you know, even if it's not a mistake, losing a big pot, losing a flip, whatever it is, like feel that pain. But on the flip side is like, when you play a hand well, you get to also feel that joy, you know, feel the pleasure of like, man, I just own this guy, man. Like I just got really lucky. I got it in with like 20% equity and I got there. Like that's a thing you can feel joyful for, right? Like you don't have to say, this is a thing I'm going to incorporate into my game, getting it in bad all the time. But hey, when you have kings and you get it in against aces and the flop's king high, you're lying if you're not happy about that, right? You're lying if you don't look at that and smile and be like, oh yeah, that's great, you know? So just allow yourself to feel the joy um, as well as the pain. But as you feel both of them, hopefully you're feeling more joy and that just makes you more resilient to the pain so that you can, again, recover faster because you know nick howard's a big part of this podcast the detox files and and you know he says that recovery is a transcendent level of performance optimization and so yeah it's just our emotions we have them we don't 
deal with them very well. We think we do just simply because we have them, but it's a skill set in and of itself. And it's, um, it's something that I think about in poker. It's, it's really where I spend most of my time when I'm by myself thinking about like, what are these emotions? What are they doing? How are they affecting my guys? How can we do better? Where do they come from? So anyway, yeah, it's like most people don't pay attention to that sort of thing, but I think it's, it is at the root of all the other things. A hundred percent, especially as poker players. I noticed it with myself. You suppress your emotions uh, while you play poker. That's kind of the old school way of, of dealing with it. And that teaches you to suppress your emotions in life. And that's a very bad way to deal with emotions because you can't just get rid of them like that. You have to understand and dissect them, work through them in, in order to apply yourself with the emotions, not without the emotions. And here's something that just blows my mind is whenever somebody's been sweating me, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but like I remember early on in my career, I was more emotional when I took a bad beat or something didn't go my way when somebody was watching. And it was almost like there was the expectation that I ought to be upset. Therefore, I felt I needed to show myself being upset. So it's like, it's just a really weird dynamic uh you know emotions they're it's they're a crazy thing they're the key to success at the end of the day um and i know i know that we've gone over and we we've done this thing where i uh screw up and we ask one question and don't get to any of my other questions um we're an hour 45 minutes in i think let's try to let's wrap wrap it up in like the next 10 and then immediately schedule a round two if you have availability in your schedule where we can cover, you know, some of the more logistical side of stuff that you do to improve your game and, you know, get into, get into the other areas. We just, you know, we hit, we hit on some stuff that I feel like we could just sit here for probably five or six hours, but (laughs) we should break it. Got to go with the flow, you know, got to go with the flow. So yeah, you, you went on your own successful on Twitch, successful as a coach, you know, you had a, Another couple of incidences, um, controversies. There's the upswing thing that, you know, we, we had a conversation about this in the pre-interview. The, that issue is still legally ongoing and creating any sort of data points at this point in time is not going to serve anybody well. Like it, it only has the potential to serve in a negative way. So I, I just want the listener to know that this was a thing that, was on my radar and a thing that I did want to talk about, but just can't do it. And the final thing is, and also I can say something about yeah, that. Go for yeah. it. I mean, we intentionally said that we don't, we're not trying to skip this and just pretend like it's not, it's not here. It is obviously a topic that I would also really like to talk about because I haven't spoken about this for a very long time, but I just can't or shouldn't, it would just jeopardize my position right now. But uh, this is supposed to conclude in January, and I would be uh, more than happy to then talk in, in much more detail about exactly what was ongoing. But at this point, it just doesn't make it just doesn't make sense, as you said. It just it only draws negatives from it from a legal perspective. So we we're going to skip it for now, but uh, we'll see in the future. It's only a few months away, so it's like right at the finish line. No no reason to nosedive right here when you're about to cross True. the finish line. So the other controversy is the Galfon challenge. And now hearing your story, and I'm actually a little surprised that you even agreed 
in the first place to take on the Galfon challenge because of this, you know, belief that your talent lies in coaching and streaming and not, not in exactly playing, which Galfon's talent certainly lies in both. (laughs) The dude is, uh, (laughs) the dude is just an absolute monster. I can see the appeal because of how influential he's been in your career and your life, but also seems a little, it seems a little contradictory to throw your name in the ring. So what happened there? Well, the first thing I want to say is that it was just pretty dumb on my end from like many perspectives, but I I can explain a little bit like why it was dumb. So I'm I'm taking full responsibility. It was just not a well thought out idea on my end, but I, I, I can explain like why it came to the situation in the first place. So I talked to Phil about his site, Run It Once Poker, right? And obviously the poker community, myself included, were trying to promote the site, make it, big, make, make it bigger, which is only good. Get some competition in there. Get some good guys also in the ring that can promote the game and make it sustainable. Look out for the ecology in the future. So when Phil came around and talked about the challenge, my main thought was he's trying to promote a site. He's trying to get attention to the site. And I was totally on board with that. So I was like, okay, how can I help? How can I help to promote this cause <laughs> because that's what it is, right? Yeah. I'm trying to become involved and I'm trying to figure out, okay, this, there is a challenge. Um, it would be nice to do a challenge because I'm also a streamer. So I stream on Twitch and if we both stream, then that's the best content you can ask for. You can see both people live, their reactions, the way they analyze. You can cut this together in a really cool way and put it on socials. It would benefit my brand. It would benefit his brand, but also the site in itself because that's where we would be playing. So I was approaching it from a standpoint of how can we make this work? And he was giving out these five to one odds for any coach. And I was like, well, this is, these are like insane odds, but obviously th- those are not my stakes. I'm not going to be playing. I don't care. Um, but maybe we can do something else. I got approached by a lot of my environment, like a lot of my friends, some friends even said, if you book this deal, we take all your action or 90% of your action guaranteed, like overnight. And it, there was also a time constraint to it. So Phil said... You know, you have until X day, which was probably like 48 hours or 20, 24 hours later to make a decision, not me personally, any coach to get the five to one odds. So I wasn't interested in the challenge because I don't play two, 200, 400 or 100, 200, whatever the stakes are. I don't play these stakes. So I, I didn't care about this specific challenge. But my environment approached me and said like, hey, look, we give you all the money, play the challenge. Five to one, way too good. You're going to apply yourself. You're going to find a way to make this reasonable because it's not about being a favorite. It's about the odds in combination with being a favorite, of course. And also there is some value to the company of mine to get promotional exposure as well. Even if I lose, it's still promotional exposure. So then pitching that to my team, they're like excited. Let's do it. We get a lot of exposure. Let's jump on the challenge, right? And I'm like, okay, man, there's so much pressure. We have the financial backing um, secured. I guess I'm going to say yes, because the time runs out. So I said, yes. And obviously, me and Phil, we, 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 you know, we talk on WhatsApp and whatever. So we started talking and said, hey, look, um, the financial side of things is not that easy to clear up. And you can see it actually now because they started playing on different sides. Some people can't play. Then there's the whole Corona thing. There's the whole, I need to move out of the US thing. So there's a lot of issues why you cannot play maybe on one at once. And these backers, they also have some issues because they need to move a huge amount of money to the site and then if we win, move a huge amount of money back. And that's not as easy as it sounds. Yes, you can do it with Bitcoin, but you still want the money eventually. So if you tell the tax department in your country, 
hey, I won like 500K in like this poker bet. I was an investor. Like they're not going to say like, oh yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, I know <laughs> poker bet. We know poker bets is right here. No, they, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're going to be like, pay the fucking money. They might actually tell me to pay the taxes on the challenge because that was public. And if I tell, well, I had investors in like Bitcoin. All right, do I want to pay, I don't know, 500K in taxes of money I didn't win? So there are some issues with this whole invest into another player and then go through like Bitcoin area where I'm, I'm going to be suffering potentially a huge downside or the investors are suffering a huge downside. And, and that came clear later on when they said, hey, we want to deposit to Bitcoin. We don't want this this way. And then I said, well, what if I win? I need to declare where the money went. We have an issue. Then the second issue was if I would play with my own money, I would just play without preparation because it's not huge money and I'm okay being a dog. It's, it's really good for the business. The, the, the promotional value is easily worth it. If I would play 10, 20, or even 25, $50, I can easily justify the loss and big blinds for the promotional value. And also I'm adding some money to a good cause, getting one and ones bigger. Um, but if I play with someone else's money, I'm responsible to be good. I'm responsible to be prepared because they're not going to be like, yeah, for your business, it's good, but our money, whatever. No, they invest $800,000, for example, and they expect me to work months in advance to deliver. And that meant for me that I need to set aside my other coaching responsibilities to a certain degree, uh, which is a full-time job in itself, and focus on the challenge. And as it became clear, 50,000 hands is like months and months of, of hands being played. It just became clear that this is just not feasible. I can't prepare months in advance, then play months at a time and leave my coaching side out there just for the challenge and at the same time jeopardize uh, the money of these investors. Uh, Even if I prepare, I could be a a big dog. So I approached Phil and said, hey, look, I really want to support your site. Why don't we just play at lower stakes so I don't need investment and I don't need preparation and we make a great show out of this? And he declined. And, and And I think it is because for him, the challenge is really important, like playing at stakes where he's excited at Play, get, getting back to playing poker is the most important part for him. And even said that it's the most important part for him to play at stakes where he's excited about the game. I thought it's more of a promotional package, so, so to speak, that I want to contribute to. And that if we would lower the stakes, for example, that wouldn't be an issue because, and I think even today, it would have been a great show if we are both on, on stream. And if you play 10, 20, or 20, 50, it's still a lot of money at the table. People are still excited. You can make great videos out of it and in cool um, squad streams and whatever. Um, but for him, he rather wanted to play people that are not on stream for 200, 400, or 100, 200 than play me for, let's say, 10, 20, 25, 50 with a great show. So that was unfortunate, but I didn't realize what he actually wants to get out of it and the whole struggles that I mentioned before. So it was super dumb on my end to do it this way, but hopefully it's a little bit understandable like how, how I felt a little bit, I don't know, pressured into doing this in some ways. And then obviously it looks completely ridiculous and dumb on social media. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you played a hand, you, you called with a bad hand pre-flop and instead yeah. <laughs> of compounding, compounding the mistake, you know, you just kind of cut your losses and ate the backlash on social media. I, I can certainly see that side of the story and I can certainly see that happening. And so closing it down here, I just want to ask you one of the other questions that are on my big list of questions that I didn't ask. What's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? The most important project to me is to 
to build a business, which we're already doing, that actually serves the people also in the business, also all our members that we have that are consuming the product. But I'm trying to create a place where the business in itself serves the individuals. It's a tool. The business, the fact that the business is running and working means that we actually let people grow and have a great life. And that's the ultimate vision for me. And we're trying to get closer and closer to that by uh, building strong relationships with individuals, really understanding what they want, what their strengths are, what they like to learn, how they like to grow. And the fact that the business is successful is the necessity to make these individuals grow, achieve what they are trying to achieve in life. So my goal is to build a business that, that serves the people that work for it. And from my experience so far, I can tell that by doing that, you will find people that are willing to give back and help the business to succeed uh, the other way around because we are reciprocal uh, humans, or not humans, but um, animals at the end of the day. And, and that's what I'm working on right now and, and have been for the last couple of years. Awesome, man. And this business, where, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience, when they search for you online, where can they find your business, your vision, and learn more about you? Well, you can learn more about us on plmastermind.com and also on PLO Mastermind uh, on YouTube uh, where we have a ton of videos. But the, the primary uh, place of information and, and resources is all at plomastermind.com. Awesome, man. It's been great, great having you on this show. I actually have a, a coaching session that <laughs> started 30 seconds ago that I'm now <laughs> late for. Um, but thank you very much. Let's book this again so that we can dive more into uh, you know, the logistical side, the tactical side of what you bring to the table. Thank you for your time and your energy. I very, very much enjoyed it. And again, around three, sometime in February, once everything goes down and you, know, you, you get a chance to talk about the, the whole upswing deal. I'd love to. Yeah. Much appreciated. Thanks for your time, Brad. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.